there's no point having money in the bank if you're not going to invest it, right? It just sits there earning nominal interest. And that's what customer data is like. It's only valuable if you can actually extract insights and take actions on it to turn it into something valuable. Why do some companies succeed in driving growth while others fail? How do some individuals advance in their careers to lead teams that change industries? In the age of mobile, these are the stories of the companies shaping the way we interact with our world and the people who drive their growth. I'm Mada, and I'm the host for How I Grew This. It's my pleasure to introduce our next guest, Lomet Patel, currently the VP of Growth at IMVU. Lomet has worked for companies like Roku, Texture, and Kinsa Leading Growth, and he's also the author of a new book called Lean AI. Lomet, welcome. Really excited to have you on board here. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, Mada. First of all, this is an incredible time for so many. How are you doing during this time? For the most part, we're doing pretty well. You know, it's just about trying to come to grips with the reality as quick as possible. There's a bit of adjustment, but, uh, you know, I'm just trying to make the most of uh, the situation. And I'm sort of turning around and trying to learn things that I had kind of forgotten, like becoming a better cook, you know? So my cooking skills are coming back. My skills of binge watching, I wasn't doing that for a long time. So some of those <laughs> things are coming back right now. <laughs> Hopefully I might need to unlearn some of those bad habits like binge watching down the road. And how about from a professional perspective, have things changed at all? How are you coping with being remote? Were you remote before? So for me, fortunately, I've worked from home a, a couple of days a week for a while. So, you know, uh, obviously it's a, it's a bit of a change when you have to do it all the time versus uh, a couple of times a week. But I would say MVU as a business, fortunately, is one of those few businesses that are doing really well right now because we're like a virtual reality social network. So, you know, as you know, with um, mobile gaming and, you know, we're kind of falling into that category of a role play game. So we're doing well from the standpoint that we've seen a lot of growth come ever since a lot of the social isolation has been put into place. And the other thing we've done is obviously try to sort of maximize the opportunities. So you know, while other advertising brands may have pulled out of the exchanges, we've found more favorable, lower cost uh, CPMs and stuff. So we've actually gone more and we're basically getting more users now at a much lower price. So from a business standpoint, it's good. The other thing, you know, a lot of our processes around managing campaigns and operations, we've tried to automate a lot of that, you know, a while back. So you really see the benefit of all of that now because there's less human dependency on continuing to execute, which, you know, I know when it comes to working remotely can be a bit of an issue. But for us, you know, we've been sort of doing this for a while. So it's sort of business as usual for us from that standpoint. That's awesome. I mean, that's so great to hear. So many people are incredibly affected by this. So hearing that you guys are doing well is actually, that's really exciting. Sounds like, you know, getting to where you are today, you've been through your own struggles. Can you tell us a little bit about your story, how you got started in tech? I heard you actually worked at the front desk and that was part of your story. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so my story is actually like a lot of lot of other people's stories, you know, it's easier to kind of look back and connect the dots than when you're kind of in the moment and you're going through like uh, challenges to really figure out, you know, is this really good or bad? And so for me, you know, I grew up in England for the most part. And I, when I graduated, I graduated from business school in the mid nineties. And that's when a lot of the internet thing was really taking off. That's when companies like AOL and Yahoo were popping up. 
And in England, nothing was really happening around internet marketing. And so I thought this is really fascinating. And especially for me, because I came from the perspective where I love being creative and analytical. And, and I thought, you know, just having some data, you know, really quickly to know if, if things are working or not could be really interesting. And so I took a big leap of faith and I applied to business school in the U.S. Uh, and I came over in 97. Even at that time, you know, uh, I was kind of looking at the ROI in terms of like, how much is it going to cost? Because this stuff is expensive coming to business school. I don't want to be like a, a student yeah. in debt for the rest of my life. And so, you know, even though I had opportunities to go to some of the, uh, the well-known sort of business schools, I decided to end up going to a business school in St. Louis. And, you know, for me, it was the cost was lower, was primarily the, the driver. But once I got there, I really realized that, you know, growing up and watching all of these shows like that are based on New York and L.A., the Midwest is completely different. You know, <laughs> it's a whole different life. Long story short, so I graduated. I found it really hard to find a job in St. Louis. For whatever reason, just doing things the way everybody else was sort of doing it, where you sort of, you know, applying for jobs and sort of using just the traditional methods of reaching out to recruiters, none of that was really working for me. And so I, I decided, you know what, I need to make a change because, you know, I've got like a, a visa and my timeline's coming down and there's nothing like, you know, when you know your options are running out that you need to take some desperate moves. And so I did take a move and I moved to Chicago. Uh, I mean, I didn't have any jobs lined up, but I had a friend. So, you know, I was able to kind of sleep on a couch, you know, and, and, and kind of get by for a little bit. And so what I realized was, you know, why don't I just apply in for a temp job? And so that's what I did for this company that I knew that was hiring. And so it was called Morningstar. And so I applied for a front desk job there as a temp and I got it. And that's when I realized that when you work at these companies, at least at that time, there's a lot of jobs that get posted on the internet site that weren't externally available. And so that's when I got access to seeing openings that weren't publicly available. And long story short, there was a job that was a really good fit for me. And uh, the other thing that's really good about working on the front desk is you get to know a lot of people. Everybody has to walk through. And yeah. to you, right? It was great because I got to know people that way. And then I just reached out to the hiring manager. I didn't really know him personally, but I, I just asked if he had like 10, 15 minutes where I could just talk to him. And to my surprise, he got back to me and, uh, you know, we chatted. And, and I kind of went there a little bit more prepared, you know, even though I was really nervous. I sort of had a bit of a pitch that why I felt I could be a good candidate for the role. And uh, by that stage, it was like seven days to go before my visa was going to run out. So I had to get a company to sponsor me. And, and so I had like another job lined up, but it wasn't like the one I really wanted. This was the one I wanted. So I just mentioned that to him that, you know, I'd love to work here. However, I need to make a decision, you know, in the next two days. And, you know, I kind of leave it up to you. And I, when I came in the next day, he had actually lined up eight interviews. I wasn't prepared, but that's sometimes the best way where you're never nervous, right? You go into something and you don't really, you know, you just go in with the flow. And long story short, I ended up getting the job. So that was kind of my first breakthrough. And what was the job? What did the job entail? It was like a, um, a data um, analyst and a social sort of product manager because the company at the time was, was a traditional publisher and they were transitioning over into the internet to provide a web subscription product for all of their publications. So I, I got to sort of see the tip of how publishers were transitioning into the internet at the time. What is the role at MVU today and how, you know, what was the, the story between that job <laughs> to where you are today? So the main story is for me, I always wanted to come to like Silicon Valley. That's kind of what you dream of, right? If you want to work in tech. And, uh, you know, I know 
my path to get here had a few pivots, you know, stopping off in the Midwest and in Chicago. But ultimately, you know, I knew that if I really wanted to become good at what I'm doing, then I need to be where all the people that helped me raise my level of expertise, you know, by being around other smarter people that, that were doing this. Again, I took the same leap of faith, you know, where I, you know, I moved to um, San Francisco, didn't really have a job lined up, but had like a uh, consulting temporary job at an agency, which I took. And, uh, and, and from that, you know, I ended up working at a couple of different places. But fortunately, what I've come to realize is you just have to have a bias for taking action. You know, the more you think about it, the more you kind of get stuck in your way. So with every opportunity that ended up coming for me, primarily, it kind of came from me sort of seeing something that I was interested in and sort of taking some action. And primarily, it came out of not going through the traditional route of going through HR, because I do apply for HR, but I've never been lucky to ever get a job through HR. I've always tried to like figure out, is there another way that I can get through to the person? who might be hiring for this job. And fortunately, LinkedIn's a great net place to do that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, LinkedIn's been really helpful for me to try and sort of try to get to the people that are really looking for the job and then try to pitch myself. And that's how I've ended up at MVU today as well. Tell me a little bit about your current role at MVU and what does it entail? So my current role at MVU, I'm VP of Growth. And so pretty much, you know, I'm responsible for the entire process of the user acquisition, retention, and and monetization. So the entire user journey from how we acquire customers, how do we figure out how to keep them, and more importantly, how do we figure out how to make money out of them so we can pay our bills. (laughs) Nice. It seems like a lot. (laughs) It's a lot. You know, for me, generally, I always try to, in my career, what I have found is I always try to sort of find jobs where I'm going to learn something. You know, it's all about learning for me. I'm really into learning because that's what I enjoy most about what I do is it's just learning and growing. And so at MVU, the reason why I joined them primarily is because they were actually going the wrong way when it came to growth. And it was kind of a turnaround situation. But at the same time, you know, I also knew that when you join a company that primarily isn't happy with where it's going, and then they're going to be more open to making some radical changes. And so I knew that I could come in and sort of help influence some of those, the new strategy for growth. And so that's when, you know, when I joined Enview, it was primarily a desktop app. That's when we moved into mobile, and obviously mobile has become a great growth engine for us. And then the other part of that was, you know, I was really fascinated early, but, you know, reading about all of this AI and automation about three, four years ago, and I knew that I had an opportunity to really practice what I was thinking, you know, because people would be more open to it, because just for the fact that the company was really looking for ideas to turn the business around. So I was able to, you know, apply that too. So that was great. Tell us a little bit more about that. And then I'd love to go into into your book, which is on that topic. But I'd love to start with just how did you apply this? You know, the great thing at working at MVU is that we have a lot of user data coming in because of being a social network and we have, you know, millions of users that use us. But the biggest challenge we had was all of this data lived in silos. And so, you know, the first thing was the way I looked at it is, you know, there's no point having money in the bank if you're not going to invest it, right? It just sits there earning nominal interest. And and that's what customer data is like. It's it's only valuable if you can actually extract insights and take actions on it to turn it into something valuable. What we ended up doing primarily when, when I first joined 
was, you know, try to like integrate all of our data sources. And, and we sort of had our own sort of CDP, but it, but it was like, you know, mobile and desktop was in two different places, the data. Uh, can you explain what the CDP is for those who might not know? Customer data platform. You know, once we had the data in one place, then we were able to sort of have a better ability. The good thing with MBU is that we had these unique identifiers to really identify where people were coming from and, and how they were behaving cross-platform on mobile and desktop using an email address and a unique ID. And so once we had the data in one place, then the other challenge was now we've got the data, you know, how can we take this data and turn it into something valuable to really help us grow on the UA side? And, and that's the time when, you know, a lot of these companies like Google and Facebook and a whole bunch of other partners were, 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 were introducing AI capabilities into their product. And we were lucky because we were able to get into a lot of the betas with these partners. So I was able to kind of learn in terms of how their algorithms were working and what kind of data they needed to really work well. So we started passing the right data to them. And through that, you know, we were able to sort of grow through those different partners. But in the process, I came to realize that we were so dependent on our partners. You know, it's like, and I've never had any partner ever tell me to spend less money, right? They always want you to spend more money. And that makes sense. And so, you know, that's when I sort of thought there had to be something better. Like, you know, what are the things that people on the team are really doing when it comes to managing these processes? And so we tried to sort of um, figure out, you know, what are the levels that we can control and how can we potentially automate that? So we came to the realization that with a lot of these partners, you still get to control the most important thing, which is the budget, right? It's all about the money. It's like, who are you going to give the budget to? You, you get to control the goals. You get to control yeah. the different experiments you set up and you get to control the creative messages. And so those were the things that we worked on automating the processes of orchestrating all these different campaigns. But what we did is instead of just letting the partners, because all they were getting was a preview into how they were doing compared to themselves, right? Because all, all the data was just being passed to them so they could sort of see how they were doing in silos. We had a singular view on how they were doing compared to all these other partners where we were spending money. And so, you know, we sort of turned things around and we said, you know what, you know, we're going to start automating a lot of these processes. And instead of giving you fixed budgets, it's all going to be fluid. As long as you sort of hit our goals, we'll continue to scale up and down based on how things are doing, you know, in real time. And so that was sort of the big sea wow. shift. That's super interesting. And you end up writing a book about this and it's trending today on Amazon. Congrats. That's amazing. It's called Lean AI for all the listeners uh, there um, who might be interested in checking it out. And you talk about how we can coexist with AI and which doesn't mean that AI should be replacing jobs. And I think you've already started talking about what inspired it. Beyond these experiences, what actually inspired you to actually write a book about it? So one thing that I really love about the industry that, that we work in with mobile is that people are so open to sharing. You know, this wasn't the way it was when I grew up back in the day with web and e-commerce. You know, there was a lot of things that we were doing that were really interesting, but, you know, you weren't really allowed to talk and go to conferences and share things. And so that's one thing that sort of inspired me was to, I started speaking to conferences about this idea and I came to realize that there's not a lot of companies that are really doing exactly what we're doing right now. I would say, you know, the handful of the companies that are probably doing it are the really big companies, you know, like the Ubers and the Netflixes or whatever, but they have so much like resources to support a lot of this, right? But there's ways to do it where you don't have to be like a big company 
to really execute it. So what inspired me was to ultimately, it was kind of a joke because, you know, taking a quick step back, one of the co-founders at MVU is Eric Ries, who wrote The Lean Startup, which is a really popular book. <laughs> and, and I was fortunate, you know, I got to know him because, you know, he saw a lot of the good things that, that we were doing on the growth team. And, you know, I reached out to him as a joke that, hey, you know, this could be an interesting idea for like The Lean Startup version two. And maybe you should write it kind of idea, joke thing. But but he actually turned around and said, you know, that he actually thought it was a good idea and he encouraged me. It's funny when somebody that you sort of look up to sort of turns around and sort of sees something in you that you don't That's see great. yourself. And so that was really the pivotal moment. The fact that, you know, up to that point, I was writing articles, I was speaking, and, and I was kind of fine being in that lane. I never thought that my next lane in terms of writing was going to be to write a book. But when he said that to me, and and then obviously from there, was able to connect me and open some doors with a really, you know, well-known publisher like O'Reilly. And, you know, things started to move pretty quick from that standpoint. And what I came to realize is, is writing a book, it's kind of like writing a business plan to start off with, because you you got to write this uh, book proposal yep. and, and you got to do an outline of all of these, these yeah. different chapters. I went through that process with the editor. I didn't really think they were going to pick the book up at the end because there's hundreds of people. It's just like, you know, like yes. startups are pitching VCs with different business plans yeah. every week or month, but only a small percentage get picked up. And for the most part, I, I'm like a first-time author compared to a lot of the other pitches that they got. But, you know, they picked it up, though. And, you know, once they picked it up, it was like, it, w- it was the ultimate moment. There was a contract waiting there. And it was like, you have like, you know, 72 hours to like either sign it or we're moving on to the next person, so to speak, you know. And so then that moment, I thought to myself, well, you know what? I might as well just dive in and do it. You know, you never know when this train's going to come back. You know, if you've got a chance to get on, you, you get on and just yeah. go for it. How much did it take? How many hours do you think it took of writing? I think for those who are considering doing this on the side, how long did it actually take you? In terms of total writing, it was like six months, I would say. But let me tell you, what I ended up doing is I had a pretty strict schedule because for me, you know, just like anybody else, you only have 24 hours in a day. Yeah. You have your time for your work, you have your time for your like family and, and, and all the other stuff. And so, you know, what time did I really have left over was really my sleep time. So I had to take it out of my sleep bucket. I ended up writing from like, I got into this habit that I created where I was writing from like 10 o'clock at night to 3 a.m. in the morning. And I was doing that six days a week. Wow, that's intense. Yeah, I don't, I mean, we hired um, Antonio who wrote Chaos Monkeys, but he actually wrote it while he was on sabbatical. So to do it while you were, uh, that, that's intense. Props to you for that. I could give you one growth hack on how to do it that worked for me anyway. My commute's like two, two and a half hours each way. So I'm driving about four to five hours in the car. So what I ended up doing is I found this app called Otter, which is like a voice memo app. And so what I was doing is every day in the car, I was brainstorming ideas in terms of what I was going to write about that evening for different chapters. I love that. I mean, that could work as a hack for people writing blog posts and other things. It doesn't have to be for, I love that. That's a really great hack. So yes, check out Lamit's book, uh, Lean AI. And uh Leave, give him feedback on what you think of it. Uh, I think it's a really interesting read. So, you know, kind of moving on, uh, you mentioned your kids, you mentioned time. We were, you know, when we were trying to set this up, I think your children had changed your, um, your Zoom so we couldn't see your face. So, you know, how do they influence your work? What do you learn from them? I think it must be 
as a growth and someone who's involved in product? So I would say that I'm, I love my kids, you know, and, and I'm sure everybody sort of says that. But, you know, one thing that I've got, come to realize is just being in the shelter is just how funny my kids can be as well, you know, when you're around them all the time. What inspires me or what I learned from them is just going back to thinking like a child. Because when you're a child, you have no fear. You have this curiosity. You ask a lot of questions. You're always asking why, why, why. And that reminds me of exactly what I was like when I was a child too. I was always a person that, you know, you could either find annoying or you could have really deep conversations with, right? Because I always want to go deeper into understanding why people do what they do. And so, you know, in terms of my kids, you know, what I learned from them is that, you know, just like every generation, this generation is, is growing up on mobile for the most part and video. That's how they consume content. So my 13-year-old, my through him, I get to learn about, so what are the cool apps that you and your friends are, are into right now? So that's how I got to know about TikTok. And, and I was able <laughs> to reach out to them. And, and, and we got in really early with TikTok, like, over two years ago, and we were helping them beta test a lot of the advertising. So he's kind of my mole on the street, so to speak, you know, tells you oh, what's hot awesome. and trendy. I love that. With my young one, you know, he's the one who probably who did this prank around the virtual backgrounds. But, but from him, what I've really learned is that is the gift of basically the quicker you come to to accept the realities of what you of what's going on in the moment, the less you're going to get stressed about it. So obviously, what we're going through right now. It's not nice. It's, you know, it's painful for a lot of people, especially painful for like a 10-year-old and for the teachers having to teach virtu- you know, virtually. He had never used Zoom until like three weeks ago, but now he's like a, like a Zoomster, right? He knows more about it than me. And so what I learned from him is that you know, the less you fight change and, and the more you go with change, the easier the transition is. And it opens you up to enjoying the process versus fighting process. And so, you know, just those types of lessons, just being around them reminds me back to kind of my childhood. And so it's always good to remember at the end of the day, you know, we were all kids as well, right? <laughs> yeah. When we become adults, we sort of put all these like things around, you know, in terms of our thinking. But no matter what's going on around us, you know, we can still try to make the best of it through our perspectives. So that's great advice during these hard times to just embrace the change and don't fight it too much. Any other advice for our listeners during these times? I think a lot of people are being laid off or companies shut down. So maybe the advice of how to cope through this, but also how to think about jobs and finding new jobs during this this time. I mean, you've... I've fortunately, unfortunately, been around like, you know, over 20 years in the industry. So I've had my fair share of being laid off and losing jobs and having to get jobs during a downturn. The advice that I would give is, Never let a job define your value at the end of the day, because who you are and what you bring, if you're tied to like a specific job, then, you know, when that sort of goes away, then it can be really sort of painful because your whole identity was sort of stuck to that. And I made that mistake early on. Obviously, when you get older, you get, you get a little bit wiser. Right? <laughs> you, get, you can decouple a lot of these things. But, but my best advice is it's really hard in a moment to really know what's going on. You know, the human mind can magnify anything. If, if, if you just seen bad things, you, you think that everything's bad forever. If you're going through good times and then you magnify, everything's really great all the time too. What I found personally is that I see life journeys as, as a series of doors. In order for a new door to open, one door has to close. And it may not be good at the time when the door is closing, but until that door is closed, 
you'll never know if that next door that that is waiting for you to walk through is going to be better. A quick example is, you know, I lost my job in the 2008 and I was able to find, you know, my next job, which ended up becoming one of my best and favorite jobs, which was heading up growth at Roker. I was like, you know, the first 30 employee, the first marketing person they hired. I was able to sort of build, play a really good role in really turning that into being part of that business that really ended up being successful. And, you know, that really came from not going through the traditional route of applying for jobs. What I ended up doing is through good and bad, there's always companies that are going to do well and there's companies that are not going to do well. You just have to focus on which companies are doing well, read about, because companies aren't going to continue to raise money. What I generally do is I always follow the money. So if I know companies are raising money and that time in 2008, Roku just raised their B, Series B. I didn't know anyone there, but I just reached out to people through LinkedIn. And it's ironically, you know, they had a job that just opened up too. And a matter of like two weeks from when they raised the money, I was able to get that new job. And it was literally like, you know, within four weeks from when I lost my job, I found my next job. But it was really just thinking non-traditionally and not thinking like of just going through HR, as I said before. I love that. Yeah, that's, I think, great advice. We are going to end with a lightning round. So I have three fun questions for you. The first one is, if tomorrow you had to delete all the apps on your phone except one, what would that one be? So for me, I would keep LinkedIn. And the reason being, what I've come to realize is that your network is really your net worth at the end of the day, because primarily, you know, you could lose a lot of things. But if if you've kept good relationships, then people will always go to bat for you and, and then try to help you out. I love that. It's a very original answer. We have never heard LinkedIn before as an answer. So uh, awesome. The second question, what's the most unlikely app that we will find on your phone? One thing that I used to have, I don't have it or I haven't spent much time on it. So I'm a big soccer fan. I'm a big Liverpool. Oh, me too. Um, Liverpool is yeah, my team. Yeah. So, so that's been my team since I was a little kid, you know, growing up, you know, I used to go to the games. And so, you know, for me, my escape was always to look at the Liverpool app and sort of see how things are doing, you know, how the players I would go through. It wasn't just watching the games. I want to know yeah. how, how mentally the players are preparing for the games. What's their mindset? What's the injuries and all of this thing. So I'm really obsessed with, you know, that. This was the year. I mean, they were doing so well. I know, I know. And this they was were like, so I, good. I know, I know. I, and I hope they, they they let them get it because, you know, I've been, I you know, know. I hope been so waiting too. for a long time, a little bit older than you. So I've been waiting for a long time for that time. I, So I have an ex and who was really into Liverpool. So when we were dating, his thing is if they ever win the Premier League, he's going to tattoo the bird. And I'm like, we're still friends. And I'm like, I want to see the tattoo of the bird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And then the last one is if you could have an app in which you could talk to a specific animal, what type of animal or who would be that animal? I mean, for me, I love dogs. I've grown up with dogs. Dogs can speak back right now. For the most part, what I love about dogs is that it doesn't matter, you know, whether you had a good day or you had a bad day, they're always happy to see you, you know? (laughs) And and, and one thing you come to realize when you have kids is when your kids are younger, they're always happy to see you, but then it becomes conditional, (laughs) conditional, just like any other relationship, right? You know, but dogs is pretty unconditional throughout their whole life. I mean, with dogs, it's unconditional. So it's like, you know, I mean, a dog doesn't care if you're, if you're homeless or a millionaire, you know, they'll come and be happy to sit on your lap. So it's, so, you know, I feel like as humans at the end of the day, we always want to feel loved, you know, and, yeah. and, and, and with dogs, you always get that. 
that would be my answer too. Uh, so I love that answer. Great. Well, this was super interesting. Thank you so much for joining us today. And don't forget for those listening to check out Lomit's book, Lean AI, on Amazon and other places. Do you have a website for it? Yeah, it's called um, The Lean AI, one word. Or, or people can even go to my blog to lomitpatel.com and they can find the link to it from there. Great. So thanks again. It was great having you. Great being here. Thanks, Mara. Thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, please leave a review wherever you listen to this and share with someone trying to grow their career. Until next time, keep growing.